I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. You know, it's not against law to buy a firearm. It's not against law to, to buy anything that they sell at a gun show. And bringing these tanks and stuff around here, I tell you what, being an American first... I'm the kind of guy that I'll stand in front of a tank, you can run over me, but I'll be back one of the tracks. No one's going to hurt me or my family. You could have arrested me any day as I jogged up and down this road. You could have arrested me going to town or going to Walmart. Waco is going to bear witness against the ATF, and I do not appreciate it, and never will I ever appreciate somebody coming here with two helicopters and cattle trailers and all that, you know, and somebody will get hurt. If you want to keep playing that game, somebody's going to get hurt. Because this ain't America anymore when the ATF has that kind of power to come into anybody's home and kick doors down and things like that. The kids, the women are involved. Damn you, I tell you what, you keep your damn gun in your holster. Hey, this is my family. It may not be like your family. This one here, he's my family too, right, Joseph? Yeah. Tell him, tell him, you know, who treated you good? David.
Hello and welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. We are back again and we're back in the studio. Producer Dan, how are you doing and how was the honeymoon? I'm feeling very relaxed, very zen. It was amazing. Thanks very much. Flew into Boston for a few days, up to Maine, and then on where? the East Coast. I'm telling you, mate. And, and then, then, but then, but then, and then up to Canada Ooh. for a few nights uh, and back down to Portland, Maine. Do you practice your French before you went? No. No? Uh, je, je ne sais pas. Oh. But no, it's fantastic. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. In the cabin glad. next to the fantastic grass. Did glad, you see it? Glad to have you back. The grass looked great. The grass looked great, mate. So well done for that. And you right, Ben? So before we... <laughs> I'm joking. Ben, how are you doing? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, you getting there? Yeah. What's the matter? Nothing. What's the matter? Felt like, felt like that was a great back and forth between you two, and then I kind of just got acknowledged. Okay, well, do you want to talk to us about some things that happened to you recently, like maybe no. some purchases or some crazy bets you, you placed and maybe ah, maybe didn't well, win? Oh, no. hello. Yeah. Hello. We don't need to talk about that. Well, we do. Ben posted a lot about his big wins the other, the other month. Was it well, two, two and a half? Yeah. And then he lost 500 quid on a bet the other day. Oh. You know. You win some, you lose some, Tom. Yeah. Um, you know. But how does that feel? <laughs> Which part? <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, no, it's good to be back in a room with you boys. It feels like... Because last time we were together was about three or four weeks ago. Yes, we, so we, feel long. we had a batch film because Dan's honeymoon. Sorry about that. But, oh, it did we, sound very accusatory. We, could, we couldn't do it without you, Dan. So we, so we had to, you know, get some things in ready in motion. Since then, we've... 10,000 followers on yeah. Instagram, so thank you so much. And Dan's going to reveal the the winner of the little competition we've done there at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Retention, lads. It's all about retention. And also, guys, the Queen's dead. So that's why this has come out on Tuesday rather than on a Monday. Makes sense, yeah. Sign of respect. All royalists in this house. We just didn't want to be slept off by anyone saying, why are you putting out the Queen? So we we thought we'd just avoid that. But yeah, so a lot lot of big changes in the world. Yeah, as always, things that remain a consistent. A big thank you to the team over at Gully Gums who have dressed us for this week's episode. We've gone with... It's quite similar to um, the main kind of focus of, of this today's episode. It's kind of something he would wear, I would say. I agree, yeah. yeah. Belted up, the old blue denim, tucked in, I yeah. reckon, I reckon. But as always, um, if you like what you're seeing, then head over to Gully Gums and enter the code Kill Ben or Kill Tom. We've been told Kill Ben is in the lead, which I don't know whether to take that as... I'm taking it as a good thing. Yeah, you take it as a good thing, but people are typing Kill Ben a lot on the word. It's not just in the lead, it's in the lead by a massive amount. Is it really, Dan? Yeah, a huge wow. amount. A lot of people want to kill Ben. Okay, well, yeah, you take it as a win. Yeah. I take it as a win as well. People using the codes, yeah. that's all I need to... Traffic. Traffic. Yeah. Traffic. Traffic. Want to head over there and use our code to get 30% off. And there's lots of great garms over at Gully Garms, so want to check that out. And another thing before we do jump into the episode, a big shout out to Joe Mail. Some people that do follow us on uh, Instagram will have clocked that we have in the world our first ever I Could Murder a Podcast tattoo. Yeah, there's been whispers from other people before that they might get something, but this has now officially happened. Joe went ahead and bloody did it. And he's he's played it safe. Mm. He's gone for the uh, KDWYD on the foot. Yes. Which I think if anything goes wrong, if he falls out of love with the podcast, he could claim that that was a loved one's initials. It's quite a long initials. There's a lot of middle names. Double barreled surname, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Triple barreled, yeah. It could be an abbreviation of uh, a, a different form. I mean, yeah, it could. Yeah. could be, yeah. It's a terrible shout, but yeah. But it could be. Kindly donate when you... Dare. Donate. Dare. Kindly donate when you donate. Last one, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought if it does go wrong and we offend Joe or he just falls out of love with us, then the the capital KDWYD, if you put some lines for it, could look like 10 o'clock in Roman numerals. 
<laughs> it also doesn't look anything like Roman numerals. Oh, well, it could. It doesn't. And yes, big shout out to Joe. And, and guys, you know, has Joe started a trend now? I want to yeah. see some people get... We heard like someone was going to get Scully at one point. Somebody wanted Swampy, the tattoo of Swampy. Uh, Swampy, yeah. I've got the uh, design if anyone wants it. <laughs> Just message me. The eel in the, tux- in the, in the suit, yeah. holding the money. Let some us know. Some people have asked to get imitation scabs as well. You said earlier on yours looks like bacon and you said it even smells like bacon. I was like, I'm not going anywhere near that. I don't think that's how the conversation went. I think went. it's exactly how it went. No. Exactly word for word um also guys a little update obviously we, the store was closed when dan was away but um since then uh a little bit awkward our merchandise company that we buy for a while has gone they've got they've gone under <laughs> um so we are currently in the look on the lookout for a new provider so when people are going where's the large you prick yeah we're still in the works of sorting that out so Please bear with us. I know we've said it for a million years now that we're going to restock things and whatnot, but it's got a bit more complicated. Bear with us, please. Yeah. So there is a limited run of, of products available on the store, but we just don't have any triple XL, double XL, or do we have some XL left? No, I don't know. Uh, no. Or single XL. Yeah, so bear with us. It, it, we are figuring it out, um, and we, there will be additional new merch stuff on there as well once it's figured out. Yeah, just please give us time. But we do, in any case, six and a half seasons or series into Ikemoto Podcast, we finally arrive at our first cold case. First what case? Cold. Cold. Cold case. Mm. Uh, our first not cold case. case cold, cold case. Not cold case. Let me try that again. Yeah, because it sounds like you're an ice cube in your mouth. Okay. On a cock! <laughs> no, ice cube. No, that's not going to be in there. It took six and a half series, but we finally arrive at our first cult case. Can't say it, can I? Cult. So it took six and a half series, but we finally arrive at our first case, Revolving a Cult. <laughs> Revol- Fuck! Revolving. Involved. Revolving. <clears throat> Sorry about oh. this, Bonds. Don't even worry about using these as bloopers and, you know, repeating them, because... So it took six and a half series, boys, but we finally arrive at a cult case. Yes. Although we've done a few cults on the old Patreon. We have. In the old uh, days of old. We've covered before uh, the Jonestown Massacre. Mm-hmm. We've also covered the kind of cultish Church of Scientology. I think you can comfortably say it. Thank yeah. you. It didn't feel comfortable. And we've also covered the Heaven's Gate mass suicide over there. So we arrive at the 51-day siege of Waco. But this this one is a very interesting one. I've got a few American friends, and I assume that Ooh, this bragging. was... <laughs> I assume that this was... Name them. Go on. Doesn't need to be done. Name them. Frank. <laughs> what did your friend say? I expected it to be widely renowned case. Like it's a big, it's a big deal case, but it was kind of half of them had heard of it. Half of them hadn't even heard of it, which I found. So one person heard of it, one person hasn't. And kind of it's two and two, but kind of similar. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that's a big enough pool of people to get. I play in little pools. You play in little kids pools? No. That's not what I said. It sounds like you said no. like that. Let's skip this part. No, I think we're going to... This case is one that I definitely heard the Waco Siege from a long time ago, and I've also mm-hmm. seen images from it from a long time ago, yeah. but I didn't know enough about it in terms of all the things it entailed. There's also a lot of things in uh, modern-day culture or certain programs which I kind of, I think, referenced it a bit, mm-hmm. like which I never really knew, like playing music from like outside of buildings to try and draw people out. We'll get into that later on, but that kind of reference point, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's... Maybe that's done multiple times in different cases, but then this is where it really stands out. Some of the, ta- the tactics they use to try and get the people out from the siege. I also listened to a great podcast called The, L- the End of Days, which, because this case as well, there's a lot of the UK based people that went over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, Waco in Texas, it, it's random to think, I don't know, it's just random to think of that many people. I think there's 30 odd people went over to, to Waco, Texas following this guy. Yeah. 
so we're going to get into it. It's, it is a fascinating case. Obviously, a lot goes on over 51 days. And, you know, there's so many different angles and aspects and theories to this case. But we're going to cover all the bits that we think are essential and also the bits that we find interesting. But there's so much out there. So uh, if you find this interesting, obviously, there's lots of things you can watch. Lots of great documentaries out there. And there's lots and lots of footage of David Koresh out there as well. Definitely. And um, for those joining via audio devices, we also have um, a YouTube channel. So every episode has a video version of it. And yeah, we'll, there'll be some lo- lots of footage, archive footage, images. It is, as Tom said, it's a massive case, but it's, yeah, it's a really fascinating one as well. The reach that this guy had or the, the hold that this guy had over people. Yeah, really interesting. Cults are interesting, right? Yeah, they're interesting, yeah. right? Is this and, some stand-up you're in? Yeah. Well, Go on. And I just thought... Get off! I thought typically we have between 900 and 1,000 people that that very wonderfully uh, support us over on Patreon. And I just wondered if we started our own cult, Mm. because they initially, they all start quite well on paper, you know, tax-free, come and live in a, you know, uh, rent-free. I'm I'm just focusing on financials. Do you know much about cult? No, but like... (laughs) Tax-free, rent-free. Go on. People will want to be part of that, I reckon. But I just wondered if we had our own cult, the Mm. cult of ICMAP. Yes. What would it kind of look like? What would it feel like? Sound like? I think it would vary massively on who's the leader. Yeah, well, we the three of us lead it together. That was, that was a given, right? I don't think that's how cults... They don't have three Some leaders. Some cults have three leaders. No. Yeah. You could have one person... like if Branch Davidian started with three leaders. Not they, Well, that's not a cult. Branch Davidian, that's a religious group. And then the cult kind of really kicked on with the yeah. Koresh. But they had three free leaders kind of similar but that's to what, not what that's not what we're saying yeah but three of us could be the leaders now maybe like two leaders and one person like if there's a bell yeah. tower one person can stay up in the bell tower and just ring the bells like on, on the hour every Quasimodo. hour Quasimodo no I'm saying one of one of us could yeah we yeah, could yeah, alternate yeah. it no no no, no, no. Rotor. You, mean, you can make friend of pigeons talk some statues me no, I'm just saying one of us could yeah, do well, it one of us yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah of course yeah. and the festival falls you could come down and we'd be like oh welcome down and you'd realise oh they're laughing at me but yeah I don't know is that answer your question I just, uh, I don't really have too many images in my mind of, of, of our cult. What do you want us to say? Usually just, usually just, cults end up with the leaders twisting things so they can get sex. I'll to, stay in the bell tower then. Well, you've already been in kids' pool so, so far. Yeah, well, that's not staying in. <laughs> and that was my 900,000 point. Ah, fair enough. Glad I did that. Fucking <laughs> hell. So now we're going to get into the childhood of David Koresh and his early life and see if there's any red flags or clear indicators as to how we go on to lead the life he leads, which is a very, very peculiar one at that. So Vernon Wayne Howell, who will later go on to be known as David Koresh, and we'll refer to him as David from this point onwards, was born on the 17th of August 1959 in Houston, Texas. Interestingly, uh, his mother, Bonnie Sue Clark, was just 14 at the time of his birth, and his father, Bobby Wayne Howell, was 19 at the time of his birth. Bobby made the decision to abandon the family shortly before David was born in order to be with another young teenage girl. As a result, David wouldn't actually end up meeting his biological father until he was 17 years old. So just after David was born, his mother took him to begin living with another man in downtown Houston. This individual was said to have been an alcoholic who was incredibly physically domineering over both Bonnie Sue and David. So downtown Houston, guys, (laughs) what do we know? I'm guessing we'll know a lot more after this. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. I don't know. Interesting facts. Well, it's actually said to be one of the most walkable areas of all of Houston. Why? Is it flatter? I imagine so, yeah, and just accessible. Okay. Yeah. They have a large aquarium, which includes touch pools and shark tanks. 
as well as some great sushi spots, but they are unrelated to the aquarium. Where's the touch pool then? Where it's Is like that the shallow pool that you were in earlier on. Sorry, the pool you were in earlier on. Yeah, yeah, actually, yes, the kids' pool. No, I was in a touch pool, which sounds worse, but bear with me. So a touch pool is one of those shallow pools that have like, what are those flatfish called? Oh, you can stingray, manta ray. Yeah. We, we did that in Boston. They like being touched, or is it? I don't think they do. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, touch pools, shark tanks, great sushi spots. And really extremely interestingly, um, <laughs> and I know we've argued about this before. I mean, you and Dan have almost come to blows about similar terminology, but Houston actually technically has three different downtowns. Interesting, isn't it? Me and Dan argued about town. Yeah, but London being referred to as town. It's yeah, it's downtown. Heated. It got so it kind of makes sense now, doesn't it, Tom? The downtown makes Here sense. Go, no, downtown. If I'm going, you be, that's not what you said there. Keep going. So Houston actually has technically three different downtowns. Downtown Houston, the Texas Medical Center, and the Uptown Galleria. My interesting fact of the day is Waco is where they um, they invented Dr. Pepper. Ah! <laughs> Fantastic. It's quite yeah. a good fact, actually. I'm a bit annoyed. Probably better than touch pools. But well, it's not competition. No, they're together. They're all, this is our work of art. But there you go. Uh, yeah, thank you for that, Ben. I know a lot, no of, people, a lot of people... Tune um, in for it, yeah. A lot of people enjoy, enjoy them. Thanks. So. No problem. I'll be back next. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Also, by the way, the guest... I made a joke the other week about <laughs> there being a guest host or Ben was a guest host. It wasn't really a good joke. Didn't... A lot of people th- thought that that was... Got a lot of DMs. Real life. And uh, Ben was being traded in, but um, sadly we lost the receipt. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, there's not going to be a, a trading of hosts. So don't worry about that if people are worried about it. And sorry if some people got, thought other things about it. But there you go. So when David was four years old, his mother, Bonnie Sue, placed David into the care of her mother, which was David's grandmother, obviously, in order to run off with her boyfriend of the time, Roy Holdman, who was a carpenter. The pair would return three years later when David was seven, and they would return married with a son of their own. David was said to get on reasonably well with this new stepbrother. So already from a very early age, he's not had any contact with his biological father. His mother has technically kind of not abandoned him, but left him with her mother, disappeared out of his life for three years. He's not really got a good sense of identity or or belonging. Yes, a lot of change, a lot of uprooting for such a young age. So David loved the outdoors from a very early age. Despite not having many friends, he liked to play outdoors all hours of the day. He never liked going home at the end of the day. As a youngster, David did not have many friends and he generally kept to himself. He was a self-described loner who avoided big crowds and large gatherings where possible. He seemed to struggle very much socially. So this is a very like interesting, him being loner and wanting to be away from people and yeah. didn't like the social interaction. That's something that obviously will change later on. So David loved to listen to preachers on the, uh, on the radio, not the Manic Street variation. And he also began to read the Bible multiple times to the point that he memorised the Old and New Testament. At school, David also struggled. He generally found it difficult to remain focused on his studies unless it was anything to do with music and playing various instruments, which he loved. He was generally not interested. He was also, whilst attending school, diagnosed as dyslexic. And as a result of that, he had to attend some special education classes. Now, at the time, he was going by his birth name of Vernon. So when he was in these particular special education classes, fellow students nicknamed him Vernie. Which I think is quite, that's quite a cute little nickname. Vernie. Vernie. 
David would later drop out of school altogether at the age of 16. So there are allegations that David was bullied relentlessly at school, and on one occasion, according to David, he was actually raped by a group of older boys. But none of this has ever been corroborated or proven. When David dropped out of school, he had dreams of becoming a rock star. He often grew his hair out and loved to constantly play his guitar. He regularly visited Los Angeles to try and perform live and build up a following, but this was not successful. So instead he followed in the footsteps of his stepfather and became a carpenter. Do you like that, following the footsteps? Carpenter's footsteps. Steps. Read the Bible religiously. There's another one that we've just kind of glossed over. I get they say so follow the footsteps. Of the, what's the what's the because they they build footsteps sometimes. Carpenters footsteps. Yeah, yeah. They just call steps, aren't they? Yeah. I've Building. never heard anyone call stairs footsteps. Carpenters. <laughs> carpenters. Do you call them hand gloves? <laughs> Eyeglasses. <laughs> this is a head hat. <laughs> Cock <Yeah>. boxes. <laughs> So no, I didn't like it because it didn't make but sense. But the other one, though, we just we didn't even really talk about, which was uh, he, he liked to read the Bible religiously. Well, it would be religious. Yeah, that was the... But also religiously as infrequently. Uh, yeah. Like routinely. Okay. Interesting, though, but the carpenter thing is actually interesting because Thank Jesus you. Christ. Not you. He's nothing to do with you. Because <laughs> Jesus Christ was a carpenter. And yeah. So not only this, David also developed uh, a habit for taking things apart and putting them back together again in order to see how they worked. And I was thinking on the drive over, we've definitely covered a case where that has happened before. And I'm sure it was David Parker Ray in the build up to his toy box. He used to dismantle things and then... Wouldn't be surprised if BTK did it as well. Yeah, but he struggled to get them back together, I reckon. But he particularly enjoyed taking apart lawnmowers. Yeah, a bit of a fascination with machinery. So didn't perform that well at school, but with electronics and equipment and devices. Very intelligent. Bit very of a quick. tinkerer. Bit of a tinkerer, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. As we mentioned earlier, David uh, did not meet his biological father for the first time until he was 17 years old. However, when this happened, the pair had a very fractured relationship and David held a lot of resentment towards his father for abandoning him as a baby. Not a great relationship with his, with his father, but he did have a really strong relationship with his mother. So when David turned 20, he got a 15-year-old girlfriend called Linda pregnant, which was illegal in the state of Texas at the time. So very much following in his father's footsteps there. He had been staying at Linda's house for numerous weeks and built up a strong enough relationship with the girl's father that he allowed them to sleep in the same room. This came back to bite him. So young girls would go on to remain a theme in David's life. So as a result of this, the, the family weren't very happy with him. The local community, there was sort of bad, bad reputation building in town for, for David. So he claimed to have become a born-again Christian and perhaps influenced by his mother's teenage pregnancy when she conceived David, he joined the Southern Baptist Church and later became a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, of which his mother was also a member. Seventh-day Adventists uh, believe that there is a sanctuary in heaven set up by God and there Christ ministers on their behalf. And according to their official website, there is one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. So after becoming a born-again Christian, old habits didn't really stop for David. He quickly became obsessed with the pastor's daughter. David. <laughs> I mean, give it some gusto. <laughs> oh, David, pick any daughter, but not that one. Not, well, not any daughter. Go for someone your own age. However, David claimed that he had fallen in love with the girl and whilst praying for guidance on the matter, he opened his eyes and apparently found his Bible open on a very specific page. It was open on Isaiah 34.16, which read, None should want for her mate. So none should want for her mate. Yeah, how would you interpret the meaning of that? None should want for her mate. Religions are quite tricky. Well, the word mate, I don't think it means the same. No, partner. Now, does it? But... None should want for her partner. 
I don't think it means get with the pastor's daughter. No. He does this a lot. He tends to say, oh, well, God told me that I should probably sleep with your daughter. And it's like, why does he keep telling you to sleep with your daughter? <laughs> oh, God said I shouldn't pay, the, pay this tab. Oh, you, you have to pay the fucking tab. Oh, I have to sleep with your daughter. So, no, get out the bar. <laughs> and he's like, well, I didn't pay for it. <laughs> I mean, this might be a hot take or people will probably agree. With religion, it can be perceived and... You know, many different ways. But mm-hmm. We know people take certain means to mean different things. And the thing about David is he knew that Bible back to front, front to back. He could interpret his own version of, of the Bible to kind of accommodate for any situation, mm. I suppose. And because he was widely regarded as someone that knew his scripture, he could kind of, I don't know, manipulate other people into thinking that he knew better than them. Later on, yeah, definitely. I think. But in his teenage year or early 20s, he's just sort of using it to play the field a little bit. Seems that way yeah. to me. So David was wholeheartedly convinced that this was a sign from God and his interpretation was that he should approach the pastor and inform him that God wanted David to have his daughter as a wife. Didn't go down great with the pastor. He had a lot on at the time as well. You're strained. Fantastic. So unsurprisingly, the pastor threw David out of the church, but this did not sway him. So David continued to pursue the pastor's daughter. And as a result of his continuous efforts to seek and be with the pastor's daughter, pastor's daughter, pastor's daughter, keep saying it, don't I? It's weird. As a result of his continuous efforts to uh, be with the young lady, David was expelled from the congregation altogether. And the term I've heard is he was disfellowshipped. Disfellowshipped, yeah, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound real. So whilst reading the Bible on one occasion, David claimed to have received a divine intervention from the Holy Spirit, who he claimed was a large-breasted woman. Mm. Is that actually what he's claimed? Or was yeah, why yeah. would... I don't know, we sometimes put things in there to trip each other up. So, so, he actually, so he said he's claimed a large-breasted woman came and spoke to him. Yeah. Okay. Have Same. you seen Jolene? <laughs> so before David was kicked out of that church, um, it was rumoured that he attempted to regulate the dress code of female parishioners, telling their fathers and husbands they were immodest, and he also flirted with Maggie Bachman, the much older wife of a respected member of the church. And this is a pattern that you'll see with David throughout his life as well. He's very keen on females and seemingly has no bounds for who he will and won't approach. It seems to be either really young or old, yeah. isn't it? It's not a middle ground. Not a lot of middle ground with Koresh. So we fast forward two years and David makes the decision to move to Waco, Texas. And this is where he joins the Branch Davidians. I'm guessing that word hadn't travelled to Waco about David's priors and what he'd been up to with the previous uh, Seventh-day Adventists. So the group welcomed him with open arms. The Branch Davidians are an indirect splinter group of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, whose members believe in the imminent return of Jesus and that living prophets can interpret God's word in the Bible. So I'm sure once David kind of learned of that based on his intense ability to memorize and read various parts of the bible his eyes lit up and as well it's just his look you could tell he was kind of styling himself on being slightly modern day jesus with his hair yeah. and when we do sermons the rhythm, rhythm he spoke to he demanded the crowd he kept them their attention and also he kind of dipped into his music side of things as well which mm-hmm. a lot of people liked and yeah so he was very much welcomed when he got there so once integrated into both waco and the group david felt as though he had finally found his true home and a true sense of purpose and belonging he began to play guitar and sing in different church services of the group at the mount carmel center the group's headquarters or main base of operations So David and his musician friends would slowly become more and more influential over this group, to the point that he would quickly rise through the ranks. And as he grew older, his personality seemed to change drastically from how he was as a youngster. 
as Tom mentioned, it does, it's quite a journey that he goes on. He suddenly becomes far more confident, much more assertive, and he's regarded by many of the group as someone who was very charming, very capable, and very uh, charismatic. And some of his early speeches are available online. He does speak really, really well. Yeah. Uh, and if you compare that to his childhood and all the, the struggles he had at school and, and making friends and forming mm. relationships, he's gone full circle here. So as his stock rose within the group, David began to make the bold statement that he was the last prophet and should therefore be the new leader of the Branch Davidians. This did cause a lot of friction amongst the group and there are lots of conflicting reports and allegations about what happened next. So his arrival, he he's he's built up a reputation, he's, he's won people over, but there were, I mean, to give some more background on the Branch Davidians, there were, there were two particular individuals running the group at the time of David's arrival, which was Lois Roden and George Roden, Lois being the widow of Benjamin Roden. And David very quickly forms a relation, a very interesting relationship with Lois Roden. So Lois Roden was the widow of Benjamin Roden and the mother of George Roden. And it was speculated that David began a sexual relationship with Lois, who at the time was in her late 60s. Koresh eventually began to claim that God had chosen him to father a child with Lois, who would be the chosen one. And you can understand how unhappy that would have made her actual son, George, who felt he should be next in line to lead the Davidians. So, yeah, I mean, you're probably quite unhappy someone who is a third of your mother's age, sleeping with her and trying to have a kid with her yeah. as well. You'd question that. Yeah, but the fact as well that his mum, kind of what George's mum, warmed so much to David as mm. well would have been, yeah, not great for him. And as a result of this, later the same year, Lois would actually allow David to preach as well as begin teaching his own sermon, which was titled The Serpent. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. To root, and these teachings caused additional friction within the group, particularly with George Roden, who began to tell members of the group that he believed David was an interloper. Ooh. 
So an interloper is a person who becomes involved in a place or situation where they are not wanted or are considered not to belong. So yes, so George very much considered David an interloper. So at this point, David has made some fairly wild claims. He claimed that he was the final prophet. He claimed that he and Lois should conceive a child who may be the chosen one. He now informs the group that God has instructed him that he should marry Rachel Jones, who is just 14 years old. As I said, he just he keeps getting told these things from God, doesn't mm-hmm. he? who was another member of the Brighton's Davidians. David would actually go on to marry Rachel Jones, and this led to tensions calming between David and George, but only for a short period. I guess he's finally away from his mum for a little bit now, but that is bizarre. So the group slowly began to divide into two separate halves, one for David and one for George. So this marriage uh, twinned with David's exceptional work recruiting new members to the group. So at the time he he played guitar, he sang in the group, but he also was involved heavily in recruiting new members to join the Branch Davidians. And he actually was an exceptional recruiter. And again, to link his knowledge of the Bible, the fact that he was charming, charismatic, able to build relationships quite quickly, he was able to introduce a huge number of new followers to their group. So he's popular with some but an enemy to others at this point so the marriage as well as david's exceptional work recruiting new members to the group resulted in david gaining more and more followers and rising popularity and status within the group the following year a five hundred thousand dollar administration building within mount carmel was engulfed by flames with many believing that either david or george were directly responsible for setting it alight and when george accused david of burning the building to the ground david responded by saying no man set that fire and that it was a judgment of god he's basically saying that this fire was a result of george being next in line to lead the group and that god was not happy Mm. with that particular circumstance So tensions continued to rise between the groups to the point that George and his followers decided to oust David and his followers from Mount Carmel at gunpoint, which is quite odd for a religious group. As a result of this, David and a couple dozen of his followers ended up camping in Palestine, Texas, which is around 90 miles from Waco. The conditions of the camp were extremely poor due to the heat and the fact that members would live between tents and cars. I think there also wasn't any electricity and any kind of running water as well there. Have you boys been to Texas? No. I went to Texas when I did that little road trip and the heat in Texas is something different. It's like that, you know, that heat that gets inside your mouth and you, when you're breathing, your whole body just gets hot. Like having one of those cinnamon sweets. Kind of like having one of producer Dan's cinnamon sweets. Yeah, I, uh, Texas heat was something different. I never experienced heat like that. So so camping in that heat and those conditions would have been, um, would have been horrible. But they also uh, lived out of cars, buses. They really lived it rough, but they were there for two years as mm. well. All due to the fact that they were following David. So David and his followers would remain on this makeshift campsite for the next two years. And while staying there, David still managed to generate more of a following whilst also preaching and teaching in Palestine. David was able to recruit new followers from all over America, and he even managed to recruit people from the UK, Australia and Israel. So David even travelled to Jerusalem to continue recruiting and set up the Davidic kingdom. It is whilst there that David had the vision that he was to be a martyr in Waco. And the prophecies of Daniel would also be fulfilled in Waco. So he returned to America essentially to challenge George. Meanwhile, at Mount Carmel in 1987, the leadership at the Branch Davidians was in danger as Lois Roden sadly passed away. And George was proving, as a result of stepping up to lead the group, to be an ineffective leader. This led to many of the group members demanding for the return of David, upon which George, basically, he 
I feel like they couldn't stand each other from the start, basically. Mm. But as soon as people started saying, we want, you know, we want David back, demanding for him to be allowed back into the group, George got furious and essentially decided to end it all by declaring the most bizarre of standoffs um, I've, I've ever heard of. He challenged David to a duel of being able to raise the dead, which was obviously at the time an illegal practice. Is it not now? Who, who knows, man? Who knows? It's crazy with laws. It's crazy, isn't it? Probably still illegal, of course. Essentially, he's saying whoever could raise a corpse from the dead is the true prophet. And that's the real quiz. A raise the dead match. Sounds like a WWE thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Imagine Undertaker Kane in the raise the dead match. I could, yeah. Definitely see that. Paul mm. Bearer. Bless him. Whilst George was looking to exhume a body in order to defeat David in this uh, event where they were going to raise the dead you know, against one another, David tried to alert local authorities to George's actions though they took no note. It's quite smart. Imagine that cool. Him. You know, but like, if you call the police, you go, oh, by the way, this guy over <laughs> here, he's going to dig up a body. Yeah. The police are nah. <laughs> you would still check it out. Yeah. They requested more evidence other than David's word, which he had a way with words, but police weren't buying it. And it was legal that time, wasn't it, Ben? To, um... Yeah, absolutely. And I hope to God um, that it's still illegal now, Tom, because is, that would be anarchy sure. in the streets. Would it? Yeah. If it was legal, would you be straight down there? I'd... I'd talk to you guys about what your thoughts were and then I'd go along with you to, you guys <laughs> fucking sheep <laughs> right Dan fucking hell mate <laughs> we did just on the Friday night <clears throat> but anyway Saturdays okay sorry it's fine so basically David's uh, trying to convince police to investigate Mount Carmel and, and George Roden regarding his illegal exhumation of a, a corpse they're not interested so he gathers up a group of his followers to basically break in to Mount Carmel to gather evidence to present to the police. So they're all dressed in camouflage and heavily armed and they uh, basically ascend to Mount Carmel. They are met by George's men in a gunfight ensues. It's an absolute war zone and at one point George is actually shot in the chest as well as his hands. George does manage to survive the attack but manages to flee Mount Carmel in fear of his life and after the attack David Koresh and his followers are placed on trial for the attempted murder of George Roden. The trial does last two weeks and at the end result finds David Koresh and his followers not guilty with a mistrial being declared in the case of Koresh himself. It just sounds so film-like. I'm going to sneak in there, take a picture of the corpse. There. I'm going to have a raise a dead match against him. Yeah. And then it's just... But we're not actually getting involved in the match. We're going to get him arrested before mm. the match can start. It is a, cle- it is a clever smart. ploy. So when David was arrested, the, the land of Mount Carmel kind of fell into disrepute. A lot of financial difficulties there, so it kind of became abandoned. And at one stage, there was even a meth lab on there. Yeah, it's a, it's a large property, really big old property. That's a lot of meth. There's meth in the madness. So after the attack on George Roden, he goes on to be put on trial for murder himself in 1989 after killing his housemate. He is found guilty of murder by reason of insanity and is confined to a mental institution where he spends the remainder of his days. So yeah, it's not a great ending for George thinking he was the next kind of leader of this religious group and he ends up, he ends up there. So however, in 1998, George Roden manages to escape from the hospital. He's confined and is found to have died of a heart attack within the grounds. And in March 1988, as we mentioned with uh, Mount Carmel kind of going in disrepute, becoming a meth lab and whatnot, Koresh actually goes back there and takes ownership of the, of the site of Mount Carmel and starts paying back the taxes owed in the property. And the followers he gained whilst living in Palestine, Texas, also move to Mount Carmel compound and a new group of the Branch Davidians is born. So before we jump into the timeline for the Waco Siege, we want to say a big thank you to our friends over at Manscaped. 
we know we said at the start of the episode about our very own producer Dan becoming a husband, entering the world of married life, being a groom. Mm-hmm. And today we're here to talk to you about grooming, below the waist grooming, but also on the face grooming. Well, of course. So Tom, I don't ever shut up about how much I love the smell of the crop preserver. Truly puts a spring in your step, and it would be there for you on any day of the year. You're constantly rubbing on your balls, aren't you? Constantly. Yeah, you can help, even stop. on bus stops, just in like not in public places necessarily. Well, Ben, you're in luck because the platinum package you can get that as well as a lot of other goodies. Oh, really? To keep yourself down there all ready and prepared just in case. You never know. You never know. And I mean, not only do they have the best grooming products, they also, and again, we've talked about this before, they have the best underwear in the fucking world. Whoa. But yeah, yeah I, do, I have to agree with you. It's the, it's the comfiest. It's the, I think I even wore them at Dan's wedding. I did too. Oh. I did too. Oh my God. The Holy Trinity. Wow. Goes to show how much we rate Manscaped and the products. We're wearing them at Dan's wedding. So there you go. Yeah. And we used them before the wedding. So, you know, the, the grooming products. You're using them during the ceremony. Yeah. You could have No. You know what I'm saying? You're rubbing your balls in the back row. There's also the Lawnmower 4.0, which is a waterproof shaver, which you can use in the shower. And you get yourself ready for big days like the wedding or days like after the wedding. Just Halloween, days in general. Yeah, Halloween. Christmas, bonfire night, birthdays, funerals. Days. Funerals. It'd be weird if you're shaving them for a funeral. <laughs> I really miss him. So a massive thanks to Manscaped for always supporting us. And why not support yourself by heading over to manscaped.com and using the code ICMAP at checkout to receive 20% off as well as free shipping. I've just looked down. There's even more different variations of the pants. Really? So let's have a pants party, lads. And why not you at home? Anyway, back to this case. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And now we're going to go into the timeline of the Waco siege. May 1990. We haven't mentioned this name since he was born, but Vernon Howell applies to legally change his name to David Koresh, citing publicity and business as his reasons for doing so. His new first name, David, being derived from King David, and his new last name, Koresh, being the biblical name for Cyrus. With a new charismatic leader of the Branch Davidians came new enthusiastic followers. Koresh has gathered supporters from across the world who wholeheartedly give up their lives to join the Davidians at Mount Carmel. However, the enthusiasm and harmony quickly changes, with radical rules soon being implemented under Koresh's control. As we mentioned at the start, the ICMAP cult, mm. all sounding and looking quite nice at the start, but then the bell well, tower. <laughs> all our cult is, is you and a bell tower, we don't know yeah. anything else about it. Well then, you know, it gets bad. Oh, does it? Oh. Yeah. He began to set strict guidelines surrounding food. The adults in the group were not allowed to eat or drink any dairy products and certain fruits and vegetables were forbidden from being eaten together too. That's odd. No omelettes? Yeah, no eggs, yeah, I guess. But the, 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 the vegetable veggie, one's more... Veggie omelette. I'll probably be kicked out for that. The veggie omelette, what's that consistent yeah. of? Broccoli. Peppers. Yeah, but it says you, can, it's, 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 you can't eat certain vegetables together. Yeah, probably be livid with a veggie omelette. Yeah, maybe. There was also an emphasis on women not being allowed to wear makeup nor jewellery and wearing short-sleeved tops was also banned. Women and girls became the forefront of Koresh's attention and sex quickly became a prominent factor. He encouraged already married couples to embrace celibacy and for the women to give themselves up to him sexually, regardless of whether they wanted to or not. Not satisfied by stealing the wives from their husbands' beds, he then went on to demand that all marriages between existing couples be dissolved that must be quite if you're there of your wife thinking this is the right way to go he's the messiah and it's like new idea guys um your marriage no and 
she's now married to me. <laughs> he's like, oh. God I, told me so. So <laughs> God said that she's not legally mine. But he was very much striving towards having 24 children. Wasn't that yes. the magical number? Yeah, 24 children was his magical number. And he, he kind of justified the idea of him having many wives in order for him to help get to the 24 children. And apparently in Texas, the, it, was, it was if you live with someone and you said you were married, it's common law, like a common law marriage. So he didn't officially marry these people, but they're considered his wives. But it was kind of, yeah, it was just very, very odd and confusing. It just shows how bewitched these people were by, you know, openly giving up their wives to him. So although this rule didn't apply to Koresh himself, of course, who was free to take as many wives as he so desired, stating this was a direct instruction from God. So most alarmingly, though the age of consent did not seemingly exist at Mount Carmel, with many of Koresh's wives being underage, and one even being the 13-year-old sister of his legal wife, Rachel Jones. So eventually, Koresh had 20 wives and numerous children by each of them, always maintaining there was nothing wrong with his actions and he was simply following God's orders. Take his belief, Ben, isn't it, really? It truly is, Tom. I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. Same. Are you sure? I'm sure. You tell me if you had a cult, you're not going to go around and go, oh. No, I'm up in the bell tower just having a great time. With? Myself. <laughs> Whisper it like that. Myself. <laughs> um, dong. Pardon? Coast the bell tower. Ding dong. According to the Davidians, if you were chosen by a crash, then this was considered a privilege, and it was said that you were part of the House of David. Oh. House of Fraser. Pretty similar. Kind of. Drowners and scrambled eggs. So Bible study was enforced at least three times a day, and military exercises were also part of everyday life for the Davidians. Their Bible studies would often go on, sometimes reportedly 12 hours to even, sometimes it was a full day of Bible studies, to him just reciting scripture to people. And on one of the podcasts I listened to about this case, someone who was there was asked, like, did you ever get the choice? Could you leave there or were you just forced to watch it? It's like, we didn't want to leave there because we believed that he was a prophet. We were there. It was, it was a privilege to be there. No one wanted to leave there. He'd also bring his music in there as well and play lots of music to people as well. So, um, yeah, it was a very, seemed a very intense place to be. Spellbound by Koresh could be one of his tracks. Koresh's preachings were often based around the theme of the end of the world, and Koresh instructed his followers to fight each other in order to train for the final battle. If he felt that the children were not training hard enough, then it is alleged that Koresh would beat them with a wooden paddle, nicknamed the Helper. Koresh was reportedly easy to anger, and things such as the kids spilling milk would also call for a whack from the Helper too. They don't cry, I was put milk, but they, they probably were then. Probably, yeah. Probably and that's were. the helper too. It's not like a, a, a second version of it. It's just the helper too. 2.0. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He was so adamant in his beliefs that Armageddon was coming that the Davidians even began stockpiling weapons to make sure that they were fully prepared for the end of time. So they were automatic weapons, also modified weapons, like highly illegal, and the amount they had was absolutely staggering. They had more weapons than people within within the commune, which for a religious group is quite a staggering thought. Unusual. Hmm. So this gathering of weapons, along with whispers of statutory rape and child abuse, soon caught the attention of the authorities and local media. Soon enough, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, or the ATF, started sniffing around Koresh and Mount Carmel. The ATF got wind that Mr. Henry McMahon was the arms dealer that provided Koresh with weaponry and ammunition. They decided to pay him a visit. McMahon was allegedly very cooperative during this appointment, and he explained that Koresh was an arms investor, demonstrating that all necessary paperwork was legal and in place. Apparently McMahon said some scripture to the police. It said a quote from 3.16 as well, which was very interesting. 
He supposedly even called Koresh on the telephone, explaining that the ATF were with him, asking questions about their dealings. Koresh, surprisingly to McMahon, actually ended up inviting the ATF up to Mount Carmel in order to take a look at what they had in storage, yet the ATF declined the offer. The ATF later went on to state that they believed the guns Koresh was hoarding at the time had been converted into illegal semi-automatic weapons, with the belief that even if they went to visit the compound, these illegally converted weapons would be hidden from plain sight. And I mean, it's a, it's a huge compound. There's loads of I nooks think, and crannies. There. But then you still would go. That's the thing. Although, obviously, we, we, we'll get onto it. There, there's a lot of people who believe that even though they didn't believe in Koresh's teachings and the way he behaved, the ATF, the FBI... They all acted in a very, you know, think a lot of things could be avoided, mm-hmm. which we'll go on to. But you've heard rumours of these things going on within the compound and the people that own the compound, like, yeah, come have a look. You can go, oh, well, they're not going to show us anyway, so we're not going to go. That seems very juvenile and lazy. I don't know, unless they just sort of view it as no, not harmless, but what's the worst that could happen if they even did have guns on site? They're if going they stop about- piling guns at you, you would assume there's something, there's a reason for them doing it, wouldn't you? Yeah, but what would their end goal be? It's, it's, uh, were they aware it was a cult? Well, they knew it was a religious group and they were stockpiling weapons, so mm. I mean... It's really strange that they didn't take it any further. Yeah. Really strange. So they maintained that their view was that Koresh was acting illegally and proceeded in their attempts to gain a warrant to enter the property unannounced. So they want to do it unannounced, so catch them off guard and find the weapons, which I get to an extent. At the same time, it's... You've had an it's, conf- it. it's very confrontational and it's if you're confronting, confronting people who have stockpiles of weapons yeah. it's also a bit of a dangerous game to play so at the same time the ATF were carrying out their investigations a local newspaper the Waco Tribune was preparing to run a story named The Sinful Messiah depicting the way that David Koresh and his followers lived it was due for release on February 27th 1993 and the ATF being aware of this did quickly to get the required warrant granted once apparently when this new new story came out people knew about the commune and they knew about Koresh Koresh apparently would spend a lot of time around local rock bars he would go there and hang out with the bands and tell them about what he was doing but he, he basically he was allowed to drink beer he was allowed to do his own thing but on the commune they weren't allowed to do it even if people would come out with him they wouldn't be allowed to do those things they had to ask permission to do stuff Yeah, it was very very odd but that's one of the things he would let go on to say is like I was out and about all the time if people wanted to do it take me away from them they could have arrested me etc etc yeah so this story was quickly coming out there about the, the abuse that was happening there the journalist was very sure about what was happening and they printed this paper and then suddenly he was like you know the big topic around there was oh this is happening just down the road yeah it's, it's all about the kickoff so the warrant is granted yet it can only be used on or before february the 28th 1993 particularly it had to be during the daytime mm. as well so we're now going to move into the particular timeline of events of the Waco siege itself and we'll also reference each day that passes by or the day number of the siege itself. So day one, Sunday, February 28th, 1993. After obtaining the relevant warrants necessary, the ATF proceed with their plan to raid Mount Carmel with the intention of arresting David Koresh for what they believe to be the hoarding of illegal weapons. At approximately 9.30am, they advance on the Mount Carmel compound using towed cattle trucks to hide multiple armed officers. And there's, there's lots of footage of them making their way towards the compound. I mean, it's it's like a mile long. Yeah, it's a staggering amount. And apparently, for people around the area, knew that something was up because it wasn't the right time of day for them using it and things like that. So it was, even though they were trying to be inconspicuous, the people around that site, they knew that that Everyone was an odd thing, up. yeah. Especially yeah. that amount as well. It's like, if suddenly has gone from like having a few to suddenly like 20-odd, it's like, well, it's not very secretive, is it? 
The ATF had previously been advised that the success of their plan depended on the element of surprise and catching the Branch Davidians off guard and unarmed. And obviously, as we've described the scene itself, completely the opposite um, uh, technique there. However, this was not to be the case as Koresh also received a tip-off prior to the event, informing him of the plan. And he didn't necessarily become afraid of this plan or the events that were transpiring he was quietly confident that there'd be a way out of this or that they would be able to hold their own although he was tipped off that none of them fleed the building well the thing is he crush had the ability of always making scripture work around his narrative mm -hmm. and the idea of a battle and the idea of you know people coming to get him was very similar to he was starting it towards jesus and you know the romans and whatnot he knew there'd be a battle that's going to commence he also mentioned you know there'd be a rain of fire and things like that so he very much would say, see, this is what I warned you guys about. This was going to happen. This is why we have the weapons. Now we have to act. We have to, you know, we have to fight back. So he, yeah, he was able to kind of weave his words to make, you know, reinforce his message to all his followers. So look, I was sending the truth now. Now you have to believe me kind of thing. So the interesting fact, he learned of the attack because of a journalist who had gotten wind of the incident innocently asked a UPS driver for directions to Mount Carmel. Unbeknown to the journalist, the UPS employee just happened to be Koresh's brother-in-law which could have been many people, Koresh's amount of wives, yeah. yeah. So he called Koresh as soon as he could to let him know what was happening outside the compound. There was also as well, wasn't there, there were various items in the post to the compound that looked highly suspicious, mm. which initially raised concerns as well. There was very grenade-looking packages that yeah. were, were, were arriving to the compound, and again, there were multiple tip-offs and, and reports to police about different weaponry there. So with the approach of the multiple vehicles belonging both to the ATF and media crews, Koresh opens the front door of the compound. He stands there unarmed with the supposed intention of asking the officers what are they doing on the property. Before he's allowed a chance to speak, the herd of officers rush towards him, wielding firearms and yelling demands. Koresh yells out that there are women and children inside, but this lands on deaf ears and fearing the worst, he retreats inside just as gunfire opens. So yeah, a lot of speculation on who actually fired the first shot here. So the ATF claimed that the Davidians started firing at first, whereas the Davidian state completely the opposite. So obviously they're blaming for one another for that. They maintained that the ATF were the aggressors and they were merely acting in self-defense. So as a result of the shootout, five branch Davidians and four ATF agents are killed with many more injured in the crossfire, including Koresh himself, who was shot in the hip and the hand. There's actually some footage of him showing his bullet wound and talking about it, and something it hurts a bit, which is... Oh. Yeah, it's just the amount of firearms and bullets is staggering. So the events from this day mark the beginning of the infamous 51-day standoff, which ultimately would become known as the Waco Siege or the Waco Massacre. So we then arrive at day two, Monday, March 1st, 1993. After the failed raid, the ATF are advised to step down and the FBI are instructed to take over the situation in Waco. Two FBI divisions are deployed, one is a negotiation-focused department and the other is strategic, and both have quite polar views on how to best handle the situation. And it's alleged that uh, one of the high-ranking individuals uh, involved in one of these particular departments was also involved in the Ruby Ridge siege, uh, which did not end well. Yeah, and the Davidians actually believe that that was kind of a bit of a, a test run for what they are going to do with them as well. So, um, yeah, that's a very interesting case within itself. I'm sure we'll cover yeah, it one day. Definitely. But yeah, one, one team wanted to be... Uh, very softly spoken and you know calm and try and get the you know the children out because there's a lot of children within this commune and the other ones were like no we want to be firm and we want to be you know very confrontational so good cop bad cop 
but not, it doesn't work in the situation. Definitely not, yeah. So the negotiation team, as Tom said, their tactics are focused on a softly, softly approach with the plan of calmly building trust with the Davidians, whereas the strategic team is simply focused on hostage retrieval and they are not used to waiting around whilst gentle negotiations take place. They are used to acting quickly and carrying out dramatic style rescues. There's that series on Netflix called The Captive or Captive. The first episode of this series is so good. This series, it basically talks about different hostage situations and there's that British couple in Somalia. If you mm. remember them, they do an episode on that. There's a prison riot and they basically, the prisoners get a certain number of prison guards hostage and t they cut, they end up, it's a very similar situation to that. I'd highly recommend it, but they, they are forced into negotiations with these prisoners and it gets very, very dark. And of course, at this point, they're trying to avoid anything like that happening. They want to rescue as many people as possible, get everyone out alive. But the other strategic team are simply wanting to resolve it as quickly as possible. So Jeff Jamar, who was placed in charge of the FBI squad during the Waco siege, allowed both divisions to proceed with their own plans, which resulted in a lot of crossed wires and miscommunication. Initially, it appears as though the negotiation team are getting through to Koresh and his followers, as on the 1st of March, 10 children are released from the compound. How could that Jeff Jamar sign off on two completely different uh, techniques? Yeah, it's, it's a mess, isn't it? It really is. So day three, Tuesday, March 2nd, 1993, the trust between the FBI negotiation team and Koresh is building, and Koresh agrees to surrender if one of his taped religious statements is broadcast on radio and television. So the FBI agrees, and the tape is transmitted via the Christian Broadcasting Network. However, Koresh then states that he has spoken directly to God, who's instructed him to wait and to refuse to leave Mount Carmel. So a bit of a... Yeah, you can again, imagine the frustrations of the tactical teams. And God also said, uh, you should send me some pizzas. Just keep it down out there as well. <laughs> God said, oh, by the way, the FBI, all your wives. Over the next few days, more children and adults leave the compound and the negotiators remain hopeful that they can come to a peaceful resolution. So it seems the peaceful way is working. Yeah. That Koresh remains adamant throughout that mass suicide is not being considered. Yeah, there are a lot of links to the Jonestown massacre. Mm -hmm. There's even an Oprah episode where, which happened during this siege, which had people who were like ex-wives of Koresh wow. and talking about him. It was just talking about so blasé, like that's going on currently, what was he like and stuff like that. It's just, it was so mad. But yeah, he basically... He, said no it's not going to be anything like Jonestown I'm not planning to do that whatsoever. So we then moved to day 8 of the siege which was Sunday March the 7th 1993 after attempting to strike a deal with Koresh to get him to release more children Koresh informs the FBI that all remaining kids in the compound are his biological offspring and they will not be leaving his side. Pretty polite for a white guy. He demands milk to be delivered to feed the babies, and although the FBI hold off at first in an attempt to force Koresh's hand, they retreat on this decision and make arrangements as requested. So day 9, Monday, March 8th, 1993, six gallons of milk delivered to the Davidians, allegedly with complex listening devices included within the package. Mm. Buggin' milk. Yeah. Bug milk. This is one of many reported instances of the FBI trying to gain inside knowledge on what was going on inside the compound at the time. That's utterly... Um, Yazoo? Yes, who? Who are we here? Probably. Because then both one bad one each. Moving on. <laughs> outside the strategic team, it... Outside the strategic team... Outside the strategic... Fucking hell. I'd love to move on. 
Outside the strategic team is losing patience at this point as negotiations appear to be grinding to a halt. They made the decision to move forward with more aggressive tactics. The telephone wires are tampered with, only allowing the Davidians to make and receive direct calls with the FBI negotiation team. The power is also sporadically turned off to the compound, which causes outrage to Koresh, and he complains about the milk for the babies turning rotten as a result. So this is nine days in, and they kind of already... Up in the ante. Up in the ante a lot here. They start playing, as I mentioned toward the beginning of the episode, they start blasting music and noises to try and make them feel distressed and keep them you know, from sleeping. They play rabbits being killed. They blast boots are made for walking, which is an interesting song to play. Yeah. I don't know why that song in particular. Tibetan monks chanting. And yeah, they, throughout all the night, they're just blasting this music. And people, I know it was reported people around the local area was also just being like, it felt like it was to them as well. But they were blasting this. They were also blasting lights into the, um, the compound as well, trying to keep people from, from sleeping. Again, if you've got a compound full of people with automatic weapons, sleep deprivation, I don't know if that's the best tactic there. I think it's it's them trying to show that they still have... I mean, it's a it's a power balance, isn't it? It's trying to show as they're, they're playing different hands. I think they're trying to do anything they can to, to um, weaken Koresh. Yeah, but I just feel like you're getting success with the softly, softly. I know he's, yeah. he's entered the rest of my kids. They're not going out there, but... I think they're just at this point messing with him. Yeah, I know, but I just think that's the wrong way to go. I, I hear you. I do hear you, but there's kids in there and that milk is rotten. That's down to them messing with him. Yeah. So a few days later, day 13, March the 12th, 1993. Janet Reno is sworn in as the first female attorney general in US history. She will end up having a significant role in the outcome of the situation in Waco, although she does not know it yet. Between the 10th and the 18th of March, negotiators attempt to appeal to Koresh and his number two in command, Steve Schneider. However, both men have become increasingly agitated with the cutting of the power and become more stubborn in their position, refusing to come out. On the 18th of March, the FBI attempts to send a message to all inside the Mount Carmel facility by announcing over loudspeaker that those who come out will be treated fairly. Over the coming days, more adults trickle out of the compound. Koresh always maintains that nobody is being held against their will, and those that remain choose to do so off their own accord. He also reinforces the message, I told you, that my God says to wait, much to the frustration of the FBI. After countless days of loud music blaring, Koresh and the other Davidians in communication with the FBI refuse to talk with the negotiation team anymore. So just to touch on the um, the idea that people are freely allowed to leave, the podcast I mentioned earlier, the, the end of days, they talked to um, a lady from the UK whose sister was was in the compound, and she's very close to her sister, and she remembers, remembers speaking to her, and she thought this when she was in Waco, before the siege, remember speaking to her on the phone and basically said she could tell that you know she was a bit distressed and she said to her okay everything i ask if you say yes mean no if you mean no mean yes oh, okay so basically she's like are you being held by against your will and she's like no which means yes and then she kind of goes on and basically it just wow. outlines how you know much control and how they'd be so secretive because people yeah. were listening and hearing and people that did escape there you know they, they left in the dead of night and you know they crawled through fields to get away from mm. them so be under no illusion a lot of people that were there couldn't leave even if they wanted yeah. to leave and it's and as I said like Koresh would leave leave the compound a lot but the people there wouldn't and it was yeah it wasn't a you know a happy clappy place for people to be it was very much a, the people were there for fear but also some people were there just because they generally believed but there was a lot of fear as well on the compound today 26 Thursday March 25th 1993 the FBI attempts to issue an ultimatum to Koresh 
demanding him to allow more people to leave the facility, otherwise they'd be forced to take further, more extreme action. Their ultimatum is ignored, and as a result, FBI tanks began to encroach on the Mount Carmel property. So there's a quite a famous clip here of Koresh talking about the tanks and what they're going to do, and he said, and he says how he's going to act. It was in, within the intro of, of this as well. It's, it's he's basically saying, you know, he's American. He's going to stand in front of the tanks, and he'll say, "I'll be biting the uh, the tires if they do so." So they're very aware of what's going on. They're filming lots of content when I was in there as yeah. well, which is quite staggering. So the next couple of days, he's the tanks patrolling the property, crushing cars and other vehicles in their path. They're just staggering how quickly they're escalating to the point with tanks now to try and solve this problem but yeah it's it's it's, it's just gonna get worse and worse so day 29 sunday the 28th of march 1993 david koresh details that he is awaiting a message from god but that he has no intention of dying the fbi still remain hopeful so he's stubborn at this point in his resolve that no one else is leaving the compound he's not going to he's not going to agree to any kind of deal from the fbi at the same time, the FBI have conflicting teams suggesting different strategies. It's just a mess, isn't it? It really is. I mean, and we'll get into it afterwards. There was certain moments where Koresh kind of was slightly leaning towards perhaps people being allowed to go and stuff like that as well. But the, the FBI just didn't really act upon it. Yeah, it's such a conflict. Like communication essentially on this was, it was just terrible. So early April of 1993, the beginning of April brings the religious events of Passover and Easter. The Davidians maintain their stance within the compound, refusing to come out. David Koresh writes two letters during this time, of which an analysis is made by the FBI, who state that it is likely that Koresh has no intention of voluntarily leaving, and they could well be dealing with someone turning psychotic. That's probably what you get for not having any sleep. Which, yeah, that's the thing, is if you're already kind of worrying about that, you're then driving people to the extremes. Mm -hmm. so it just feels like it's counterintuitive. So day 44, Easter Monday, April 12th, 1993, the FBI have been working on a plan to use tear gas to force the Davidians out of Mount Carmel. This plan is presented to US Attorney General Janet Reno. She is hesitant at first, but is soon won over when allegations of sexual and physical assault against the Davidian children are mentioned. So day 45 through to day 47, Koresh decides to pick up the phone once again to the FBI and rambles onto them for hours, preaching what the FBI describes as Bible babbling. Koresh also claims to have spoken directly with God, who has encouraged him to write his own version of the Seven Seals manuscript. He promises that upon completion of his version of the text, he will vacate the property. High up government officials meet to discuss the tear gas plan when it is brought to light that the Davidians allegedly have up to a year's worth of supplies. The hope that the negotiation team initially held begins to dwindle, with thoughts that the Davidians will not surrender through negotiation tactics alone. Day 49, Koresh reports that he is close to finishing his writings of the Seven Seals, but he is unaware of the mountain pressure on the outside. Again, if they've given you the inclination that once I finish writing this, it's done. I, mean, I know they're believing that certain abuses happen. But also he's changed his mind a couple times after uh, talk, talking to God. Well, God said I need to do another chapter. There's eight seals. <laughs> Just found another one. Kiss from a rose. All right. Um, so day 50, so Janet Reno gives the authority to go ahead with the tear gas strategy and the plan is signed off by US President at the time, Bill Clinton. I did not have sexual relations. God told me to do it. Am I right, Koresh? So questions surrounding the remaining children's safety are allegedly raised, but Reno and Clinton are advised that the gas to be used will not impose harm. How will it not impose harm? So it only affects adults. So we then arrive at the final day, the 51st day of the siege, Tuesday, April 19th, 1993. 
At approximately 6am in the morning, the FBI proceed with their intention to gas the complex. Tear gas is distributed throughout the building, causing an immediate counterattack from the Davidians, who begin shooting at the FBI. The FBI calls for more gas, which will enable them to flood the entire complex. An hour after the attack begins, Reno and Clinton hold a meeting to discuss the events so far. Confident that all appears to be under control, Janet Reno leaves Washington at approximately 11.30am for a meeting that requires her attendance in Baltimore. At around 11.40am, the tear gas has been completely used up and the FBI are forced to stall their attack and lay in wait for the Branch Davidians to start trickling out. As well as the dispersion of tear gas, military tanks begin charging the buildings in an attempt to cause structural damage and at approximately 11.45am, a wall on the right side of the building collapses. So this is quite a famous scene where you see the tank kind of encroach and smash down a wall yeah. and they're basically using tear gas in there. But um, they had lots of gas masks within the, within the grounds anyway, but... They were releasing like huge quantities of tear gas, weren't they? Mm, floods of tear gas. Imagine signing off on that. Because that's the crazy thing. This is all being broadcasted. Yeah, exactly. And the whole world can see exactly how the Americans are handling it, which not the best. However, some 25 minutes later, much to the FBI's and the watching world's horror, they see smoking flames begin to emerge from the building. And this is, it, the images are absolutely horrible. Yeah. And also where the compound is based, it's quite open land and it's a particularly windy day and the gusts only encourage the fire to become more engulfing. The FBI desperately plead with Koresh over loudspeaker to vacate the premises whilst there's still time, all the while the fire is rapidly gaining momentum. There's also, if you think of all the alleged ammunition and mm. firearms inside there, yeah, it's going to go up, isn't it? So soon the whole building is up in flames, and although nine adult Davidians escape successfully, the world watches in horror as the remaining adults and children are left to perish in the roaring inferno. Although fire trucks arrive on the scene, and I think they were kind of held up a little bit to arrive as well, which is which is horrible. The property and the people are beyond saving and the FBI can only look on as their 51-day rescue attempt literally burns to the ground. Why did they not have fire departments on standby if they knew this was a potential outcome? Maybe not to that extent, but why I would they not? I don't think fire was ever touted as a possibility there. Well, there's a gun battle about to take place. I oh, God. Gun Sorry, battle, I didn't yeah. know I was an expert in the room. Go on. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, so there's two sides. They have yeah. a gun battle and usually there's one winner. Okay. But everyone ultimately loses because guns are bad. Yeah. Um, and, and surely if they've, even if it's word of mouth that they have grenades, yeah. ammunition, mm. explosives, surely there's a possibility that they, they've got fucking tanks there. Yeah. So why have they not got a fire department? You get fire departments at like fates. I think that's more to kind of get Show them, them. Yeah, the no, community straight away. Yeah. Inspire kids. Yeah. The coconut showers and fire. I don't understand. It's the coconut milk. <laughs> Oh, we haven't had the fridge on for a day. It's gone rotten. Fuck off, crew. I don't get why they don't have fire departments. It seems a huge oversight. So sadly, 76 people died that day, including 25 children, two pregnant women, and David Koresh himself. To many, Waco was considered a catastrophic tragedy, and the handling of events came under very, very heavy scrutiny as a result of the horrific outcome. As a result, things have since changed in how situations are dealt with by officials, which is a very small plus we can take from that. As well, it's important to note that it's very much debated who started the fire. So Koresh um, chose to end his life with, he was found with a gun by his side, which some people think could be he knew what was happening and he, he decided to take that way out. Mm -hmm. um, but sadly, lots of people just perished within the fire. As I said earlier on, with he kind of moulded the scriptures around what was happening and yeah. the idea of ending the fire and, you know, that was all part of his kind of there teachings. Are, there are a lot of similarities with the Jonestown Massacre, 
just in how he also took his own life at the end. He also manipulated scripture to suit his narrative. Mm. People weren't allowed to go to and from the compound. The, the cult leaders have a very similar way in terms of how they manipulate people. One thing I would say with this is though, Koresh still has a lot of people that believe that he was the last prophet and what he said was true and that his message was, you know, where a lot of the other cult leaders, I think after their final act, mm. it was quite clear that either what they said didn't happen or it was all, all based on a lie. So mm. Koresh is a very um, interesting character because people, yeah, some people, a lot of people believe the way it was dealt with was wrong. I think yeah. Yeah, most people would agree yeah. with how it was dealt with was wrong. Yeah, he still has a lot of people who kind of adamantly follow him and even people that yeah. were there who escaped believe what he said was true. He was a hero, and think a they, martyr. And, and they think he'll come back kind of thing. It's a very, very interesting case and there's so many layers to it and as I said, there's so much out there. There's so much footage of Koresh talking and speaking and it's, it's such a sad way for it all to end and it does feel like it could have been avoided. As I mentioned, there was a time where on the radio they heard someone else talking about the preachings and, all, and the scripture and whatnot and they basically asked for a direct link to this guy and basically um, Koresh's second-hand man thought that if he could speak to him directly on the phone, he might be able to let small people out, people might mm. believe or even Koresh himself might decide that this, it was time but the FBI never linked them up just decided we're not going to do it which again it's like why wouldn't you try anything you possibly can for it to end in a peaceful way yeah i don't understand the signing off of two separate tactical teams or mm. divisions going off and doing completely the opposite as, yeah. as one another i don't see the the way that that could ever work out well no so there you go it's yeah it's 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 absolutely tragic how it how it ended but we're going to talk about a little bit of the aftermath now there are quite a lot of conspiracy theories people have very different beliefs in terms of who shot the first shot why the building was ignited so we're going to go through some of that now so much of what happened on that final and fatal day in waco will remain a mystery however here we are going to highlight some of the major conflicts and conspiracy theories brought about by survivor stories and official government reports so firstly, it is alleged that three separate fires started in different areas of the compound and there is still a lot of speculation to this day surrounding who was responsible for and how the fires were initially started. Obviously before Koresh even took uh, leadership of the Branch Davidians, there was also that the half a million dollar administrative building that caught a blaze. Yeah. People believe that could have been an inside job, Koresh, George could have been in his history could have been trying to take the place down and kind of be a martyr well as i said i think if he saw that there's another way for it to end and the fire fit the narrative of the kind of it's quite biblical isn't it the way of ending mm. rather than for a gunfire may he could have thought this is the way to go out as a martyr and it kind of he, he will remain as a kind of prophet to some people which as i said he very much is so while the fbi maintains to this day that they have recorded evidence obtained from their planted listening devices that it was the davidians themselves who started the fires it should also be strongly noted that a post-event investigation into the waco siege discovered that the tear gas used was in fact flammable under certain circumstances Jesus. and you just have to remember exactly how much they pumped in there yeah we're going to talk a little bit about the um, the front doors of um, Mount Carmel because there's a lot of conspiracies attached to this one and we're trying to work out in our heads how, how this works because it doesn't make complete sense. So maybe maybe some listeners or viewers will, will catch this sooner than we do. So the heavy-duty steel front double doors of the Mount Carmel compound would have supposedly provided all the evidence needed to determine which side fired the first shots in the failed February 28th raid. Steve Schneider is recorded as telling the FBI, the evidence from the front door will clearly show how many bullets and what happened. So I can understand the how many bullets part. Mm. 
I can't understand how you work out which was the first shot fired. Yeah. Due to the sturdy nature of the doors, they were able to withstand the fire, yet during the trial, which followed in the same year, somehow only the left-hand side door was presented in evidence. The right-hand side had remarkably been lost. So Dick DeGurin, uh, a Houston-based attorney who visited the Waco site, testified that when he saw the two doors together, the right door presented protruding metal on the inside, which was an obvious result of bullet holes made by incoming rounds. The left-hand door, however, demonstrated that shots had been fired both ways, outgoing and incoming. So it was rather convenient that the right-hand door had gone missing, enabling the government to provide a much more biased testimony in court based on the door alone. Although never proven, there are many rumours to suggest that the government lost the right-hand door on purpose, as it was evident of their guilt. So there's a lot going on with the doors. Yeah, Jim Morrison um, yeah, apparently came out to say, I come a bit of stomach I still don't understand that. I understand the inbound and outbound fire. I understand that. But in terms of using the doors as evidence to generate who shot the first bullet, surely not. It, 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 it's all a bit confusing. Yeah, I don't really... Yeah, it's them losing a certain door to try and be like, look, see, it was more from their side. I get that. But then, yeah, to prove who did who started it, it doesn't really work. In 1999, Janet Reno appointed U.S. Senator John Danforth to conduct a deeper investigation into what happened during the events at Waco. President Clinton vocally showed his support, calling him an honourable man, an intelligent and straightforward man. The only thing I would ask is that he conduct a thorough and prompt investigation. The two main questions they're looking to be answered were, was there a cover-up and did government officials kill anybody? And a year later, in July 2000, Danforth announced the FBI agents and government officials involved in the decision-making process were exonerated from any wrongdoing. He also said there was no cover-up, and on the release of his report, Danforth said, I give you, the American people, these conclusions with 100% certainty. That's strange that, like, the, they'd prove the FBI were, were no, not in the wrong at all. Yeah. Very, very strange. Yeah. I mean, I think most people would look at that and say the communication was completely off, they employed inhumane acts to kind of get them yeah. out which i understand obviously the situation is so easy for us to say because we know how this ended but i just think the, the strategies there seem just seemed a bit plain rabbits being killed yeah it seemed and, like, as well because you are torturing the kids in there as well oh absolutely like so yeah absolutely and it seemed like the turning point for me was when initially it looked like he was going to agree to the truce and then he went actually i need to go and speak to god yeah then that's when the episode. sorry sorry god's on the other line <clears throat> hey what you doing so david koresh did not fuck ever whose wife okay <laughs> so david koresh did not ever state that he and the davidians would never come out yes he may have been stalling somewhat but the fbi were informed of his advances with the seven seals manuscript on april the 16th with the davidians reportedly calling to request writing supplies to have the text officially typed up the next day on april 17th so that prompts the question, what was the need to then go ahead with the aggressive tear gas plan? Reportedly, Koresh predicted a judgment day would take place around the date the Waco siege ended. So yeah, the, him saying that date and then all this happening, the idea of him maybe starting the fire to so be like, you know, I told you this would happen, yeah. etc. It, kind of, it, would, it would all kind of make sense and tie in. There. Ending his life so he wouldn't have to perish in the flames. Yeah, but it doesn't add to his story. But it would suggest that he knew what was coming. Well, the fire was going on. Yeah. But he knew, because if he started Yeah, he fire, knew the fire was yeah, going on, because he could see the fire around him, and yeah. then he shot himself in the head. Of, of course. Yeah, is that what your point? C kind of, yes, but kind of not. Yeah, maybe he felt the heat of the fire, and he's like, there's a fire. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's... But kind of what I was saying is if he's predicted the Judgment Day date, also started the fire himself, then decided to end his own life, that kind of all lines up in he's got the exact date, right? Oh, that's the point I made. Yeah, and I'm just agreeing with you. Just okay, so why do you say it in a weird Painting way? it a bit more. No, you're you not. You're yeah. saying, you've made it kind confusing. Painted, no, I painted it a bit more for you. Did you? Yeah. I felt like I was a lovely picture and you shat on it. Anyway, look like he's... What does it look like? That looks a bit like that. Yeah, it looks a bit like this. This week, Tom, I've got three. Three. Lovely stuff. I've got two. Okay. Well, we could sort of go one after each other. Okay. So my first one is, and I threw this into Wheel WhatsApp in uh, not so long ago, and I threw this in there, and I thought I sort of threw it in there jokingly, but it stuck, and I also struggled. So Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. I did think similar to the same picture. Bit curlier hair, but... Weird you gonna watch the uh, Weird Al film? Um, it, it looks interesting. Daniel Radcliffe was a surprising cast. I agree with um, that. But might check it out. This is someone I've actually already said before for Lookalikey. Okay. But I'm going for a character he's played. So I'm going for Jared from Eagle vs. Shark, Jermaine Clement. Yeah, that's pretty good. So uh, a slightly more niche photo of David Koresh in his younger years. Uh, I've gone for a young Dwight Schrute. Yeah, it's not bad. If you put... Or a young Rain Wilson. No, it's just Dwight's glasses, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's what I mean, no. said Dwight. Yeah, I just can't see the picture clearly at all. That's all. Oh, that's cool. Thanks, Dan. My last one is a picture of David Koresh, if you imagine him a bit older. And it's Chaz Hodges from Chaz and Dave. Yeah. It's just the curly and glasses, really. But. Yeah, no, they've got the same kind of mouth going on. Jeff those. Lynn, I was thinking as well of ELO. Um, but... It's not bad. And then uh, finally, as I mentioned, my dad said Jim Morrison. And I found a couple of good photos there that line up all right. And that is the case of the 51-day siege of Waco. Very, very big case, obviously 51 days of the siege and then all the other ongoings as well. It's very fascinating, the research for this case. And yeah, there's so much out there. Dra- dramatized series as well called Waco, which you know we recommend as well. But yes, that's kind of, we scratched the surface there on it. And uh, yeah, as I said, people still kind of look at uh, Koresh as a martyr. And they believe that he, you know, he'll come back again. So yeah, it's it was a it's a very very fascinating case. Yeah, and it's um, the first case of a, a cult that we've covered on the main channel. So if mm. there are any other cult cases you'd like to see or hear, then please uh, let us know in the comment section, or just drop us any kind of communication or, on the social media. Yeah, or if, if you want to let us know any rules you'd like to be implemented to the ICMOP cult. Yeah, uh, let us know. Because uh, we're really at the early formation. All we've got so far is Bell Tower, and you're up there. That's what we've got. Festival of Fools happens once a year. Well, we didn't agree on that. I oh, think. yeah. Did we? I think we did. I don't know. I was in the tower, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you hear the music, you're like, oh, I'll get, get, get into some of that. Go dancing down. A little jig. Yeah. Okay. I'm Tied up. It. People throwing some eyes. Tied like, Have you seen Antipocalypse? I have. Okay, yeah. Anyway, so let us know any more ideas for our, for our, for our, our cult. cult. Yeah. Yeah. If you just can't get enough of ICMAP, we have got a Patreon page where there's, at the time of recording, over 80 exclusive episodes on there. We do requests on there as well. We've got a load of interesting cases coming up. We've also got all the social medias, pretty much all of them. Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Just search at Could Murder a Pod or on TikTok at I Could Murder a Pod. And on Facebook, just type the name of the podcast. It'll pop up. It will pop up. You'll yeah. see, you'll hear Aurora going, what's yeah. that? And there's the vibe from the page. And you're like, well, that is a place I want to be. They like, know how to operate the cult, I reckon, yeah. the Facebook. They'll be the ones throwing the tomatoes at the Festival of Fools. Yeah. Probably. If we, I mean, I don't know. The store is open again. 
It is open. It is open, but it's not full of stock. But there is stock there. What have we got in stock? We've got mugs, we've got hats, we've got mm. tote bags, we've got posters, uh, Sticky stickers, stickers, sticker packs, badges, and T-shirts in small, medium, and large. Yeah, if you go on the website, they're all there. Have and a browse. Yeah, have a browse. And we are working on it. We are working on it to get, you know, a new supplier and new merch and whatnot. So sorry about the wait and delay, but um, it will be there. And if you're not already, um, we have got the audience vote case yes. coming up. So we will be deciding that via a post on Instagram. It will be in at the time that this goes up within a week or so of, of the time of recording. So if you're, if it's still September, please follow us on Instagram. Please. <laughs> commit, to, commit to the voice. Please. So start thinking about what case you'd like to see us cover. And yeah, the vote will start and you guys get to pick. There's another big, big case coming next week and we can't wait to be back with that one. And I think... Really, that's everything. I think, Ben, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, that is all there is to be said. And done. done. So anyway, like we always say... Nope. We've got one more thing to do, Tom. Think about it. Oh, fucking hell. There we go. Oh, yes, guys. Sorry. Thank you, Producer Dan. I nearly forgot this. Uh, We did it at the beginning. Obviously, the the 10K followers, there was a special giveaway, special prize. And Dan was being put in charge of picking the quote. We asked you guys, what quote from the podcast do you particularly enjoy and then we'll pick from the quote who wins the prize I could have said that a lot easier but I didn't so Dan producer Dan has been given the, the task of picking it we don't know what it is unless. we don't yeah. so and I, I love the quotes by the way I love all the niche quotes yeah. you guys picked it was, it was it was really fun to read wasn't it yeah, it was a lot of popular ones mm. such as uh, Beef Ender was quite popular yeah Sandy's died a few times Sandy's died Poo Sticks was quite popular Ben also, I saw a few comments about Flight Simulator. Yeah, yeah there were. Yeah. So that should be... That's good. Personal favourite for me... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's going to be a good one. No, two comments here. Oh. So it's not the winner. But oh, the, these uh, runners-up? Yes, these are runners-up. Okay, yeah. Right, sorry. Didn't know. We'd... But it was a personal favourite for me. Okay. The debt, crippling. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Like the canoe, man. Loved it. But um, right. for me, the, uh, the winner was... Uh, from Callum0809 and he didn't actually put the comment but he said season 6 episode 1 at 40 minutes 58 seconds is the best quote peeping Tom raping Ben <laughs> Callum oh, like Callum's done it for me wanking in your mum's knickers as well <laughs> yes. we have, we have I thought said, that got cut I didn't realise we it was... have said some shit in this podcast yeah yep dead baby under the bed <laughs> right in the bin <laughs> yeah lots of uh we have said some things. We really have. Yeah. Well, congrats to Callum. Um, drop us a message with your details and we'll get something very, very special sent out to you pronto. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But anyway, guys, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, Fascinated. So we can pick. Need boots. You need to have a more sensible age, age radius. To make that slightly more sensible, I don't um, okay, talk about that serious nonsense stuff. Um, unless, unless it's saying you yeah, spend time in kids' pools, yes, hmm. yeah, that was a mistake. I didn't think it would stay in the episode, but playing it has with, playing with your dong in the bell tower. D- ding, I prefer ding. You said dong, <laughs> no, I said ding. Um, unless it's agreeing to be in a cult, agreeing to be one of the free leaders, and then you end up in the bell tower with. Pants down. 
Okay. All right. Because now we're going to end it there. They tied me up. No, we did not tie you up. You did. You said. Hey, guys, look at this. Anyway. See you later. All the best. Two bit. Are you boys getting level okay? Yeah. Could I have a little bit more me and less Ben? Thank you. Okay. That's great. I didn't speak. <laughs> you have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast. Written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Edited by Ben Bonsey. Additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna-Parker. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten, And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash pod. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.